her bangs are so <laughs> so big. Her eyeshadow is so multicolored. I mean, at the end of the day, this is a Cinderella plot line, right? I have a head for business and a bod for sin. Hello, and welcome to the Untitled Gen X podcast, a podcast dedicated to the pop culture that raised us. I'm Lori, a writer and pop culture lover who's delighted to welcome boss lady, Dr. Jeanette Gennard to shatter glass ceilings and female stereotypes in 1988's era-defining feminist classic, Working Girl. But before we get into the shoulder pads of it all, I'd like to tell you a little about Dr. Jeanette Gennard. Jeanette spent 20 years in corporate roles before transitioning to executive training and coaching. Today, she is a full-time business professor and consultant specializing in organizational leadership. Jeanette's passion is helping people enhance their leadership skills so they may achieve their aspirations. She's also a loving wife and mom of two and one of my very best friends. Welcome to the podcast, Jeanette. I'm so happy to be here, Lori. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh. I can't believe we're here and we're doing this with working girl, no less. <laughs> I love it. All my favorite things, my bestie, businessy talk, <laughs> 80s, it's all here. Shoulder pads, big perms. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Jeanette, we met in seventh grade in English class, but... We've known each other a really, really long time and all through high school, all through college and all through our first corporate experiences. Now, we both worked in the corporate world for a long time and we would laugh and cry, a lot of crying (laughs) over our working girl frustrations and victories. There were victories, but I mean, it was a tough road. It was. When you just said that, I was like, there was a lot of tears. (laughs) There was a lot of tears. (laughs) Oh, there was a lot of angry tears. Frustration. Frustration tears, for sure. In fact, I remember my first business job, which I started right after my 16th birthday. I remember saying that I was going to write a book called There's No Crying in Business. Except there is, Jeanette, because my first corporate job out of college, I I would often be very frustrated. And like many women, you know, I I think this is something that confuses men sometimes. They think when a woman cries, she's crying because she's like emotional or sad. It's none of those things. It's almost always frustration. Frustration right? It's not being taken seriously. It's being dismissed. It's being passed over. There's a lot of frustration as being a young woman in a corporate environment. And I had this boss who I would cry in his office so often. I'm I'm just so horrified to say it now that like when I would go in there for anything, a signature, anything, he would take the tissue box. It was a joke and he would put it out in front of me. And that could totally be like misconstrued to be like this, you know, terrible thing he was doing. It was a joke between us. He was lovely man. And he always tried to take me very seriously, but yeah, I was a, a chronic crier in the office. 
That's hilarious. I mostly ran to the bathroom to cry. I mean, that's the smarter (laughs) choice. Clearly it's the more professional choice, really. Okay. So your years in, in that corporate life, do you look back on it fondly? Is it like, well, I learned a lot, but I'm glad that I'm maybe not so enmeshed in that because you teach leadership and you do corporate training, but it's very different to be in someone else's corporate setting than your own. How do you feel looking back on your time? Great question. My professional career really was two phases. The first phase, as I mentioned, I was 16 years old. My mom drove me to the local Sears department store and I put in my application and I thought I was going to be like getting to choose whether I was going to work in the juniors department or maybe the kids department. It turns out that there was a corporate office, the West Coast corporate office located there and my application got passed on to them and I was hired in a really, really hectic office. Um, And so, yeah, I was 16 years old. It was supposed to be a summer job. And I ended up staying there for six years through college. Actually, I'm so grateful for that woman in that role who gave me a lot of responsibility and I ended up being there for such a long time. And so that's the memories that I have of running to the bathroom to cry when I was frustrated, um, mostly because customers were horrible on the phone. And then the second my real career after college, you know, was in corporate sales and marketing. I worked from home. And so it was a very cutthroat experience with clients. And so to answer the question, I am very grateful for both of those opportunities. I refer to experiences that I lived in those 15, 20 years all the time with my students in the classroom. I give examples. And so I'm so, so grateful for that. I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for that experience. And I wouldn't be able to bring the concepts to life in the classroom if it wasn't for that experience. So I'm grateful for the experience, but it it was very difficult, especially um, my corporate job um, after college was in the aerospace industry, Mm -hmm. which was very heavily male dominated. And it was that very military male dominated. And so it was just the like trifecta of male corporate culture. And so, yeah, there was a lot of moments where I wasn't taken seriously. I was very young. I was a girl. Mm-hmm. And so there was a, there was frustrating moments where I was not taken seriously or I felt that I wasn't taken seriously. Right. It was so cutthroat. And when I would try to explain that this is wrong, what we're doing is wrong, it was hard to convince people of that. Absolutely. And my corporate experience was in a similar environment to yours. And when you try to speak out against corporate culture that's so ingrained in people, no one's going to listen to you, even if you're right. And it's the most frustrating thing. I mean, you and I, I'm sure, have both encountered glass ceilings. You know, you're putting in the work, you know, you're the best person for the job. And yet, there's so many politics involved. It's just very challenging. It's challenging for everyone coming up in a corporate environment, but it is particularly challenging for women. And this film shows us that. So in terms of Working Girl, this came out in 1988. What is your history with this film? I don't remember the first time I watched it in its entirety. I feel like I had seen like bits and pieces. Uh 
um, before I ever saw the whole thing from start to finish. But by far, for sure, the thing that stands out to me the most was the professional air quotes attire. Oh, yes. I can honestly say I was very much influenced by this desire to be a professional businesswoman so that I could wear the suit. (laughs) I was motivated by this idea of making it, you know, wearing the fancy suit, having the office. And this image really stuck with me going back to that job I was mentioning. The office was located underneath the mall. And I remember during my breaks, I would go upstairs to the fancy department store and stroll the fancy suit section. And I remember dreaming and telling myself that one day I'll be able to wear that fancy suit and carry that, you know, fancy work bag. But I think going back to that idea where we talk about if girls can see it, right, if women can see it, then you're more likely to believe it. Absolutely. It's aspirational. Yes. I feel as cliche as that sounds, I think that that was definitely an element for me. At the time, I was too young to see all the bad things that the movie is portraying that unfortunately (laughs) are still perpetuated today. Right. But on the positive hand, um, it was very aspirational. And you know, so often in business, what it takes is somebody to believe in you. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that belief can come from ourselves, but when you feel like you have the support of a great leader, a great boss, you're in such a better position to believe it for yourself. In the character of Tess, here's this woman, you know, she's got, what does she say? A brain for business and a bod for (laughs) sin or whatever she says. So great. Such a classic line. She can be both of these things. She can be young and beautiful and sexy and smart and capable. All she needs is for people to actually listen, try her, give her opportunity. And she rises to the occasion. Oh, I cringe hearing that because yes, it's so true. And I think that's still true today. I think women are still kind of struggling to maintain their femininity. Yet when we do, it's held against us. And so, yes, that sort of duality is what makes it challenging for women. It does. And I think that's what makes this film so relatable. I think this is why the film was so wildly successful because every woman saw herself in Tess. And I think we saw ourselves in all of the characters, right? Sure. And going back to that first job, I mean, I was an admin and I could, you know, that end scene where they're giving her the little send off and all the secretaries are all circled up and all that. I mean- that's still happening today Yeah, (laughs) in offices across (laughs) the world. Let's talk about the origin of Working Girl. So there's a screenwriter, right? Kevin Wade. He's a young guy. And he got the idea for this film back in 1984. He said, back then, I spent a lot of time on a bicycle riding around New York. I would see the Staten Island Ferry coming over and those women in sneakers getting off and then stopping to change into dress shoes. That's how I discovered this story, a modern day immigrant story of a person who comes here, not really speaking the language, not with the right clothes, not knowing the customs, but with smarts. It's the Horatio Alger story. I knew right away it was about a young woman. 
I love this. I love that he's just seeing these women get off the ferry, right? In these tennis shoes and they're walking to their corporate jobs and they change out of those white tennies and they put on their heels before going up there. I mean, it's it's so classic. I agree. I love that. And what a metaphor. I mean, literally <laughs> this transitioning, right? Where women are like putting on the mask, right? In, in the form of shoes in this case that picture resonates so much with me. And on the other hand, it's funny, right? To picture it. (laughs) And then on the other hand, still, we kind of still do that today. (laughs) Don't we? I mean, even like when I go out for like something fancy, I will always have, I know you always have shoes with you. Jeanette, you are notorious for that. Jeanette likes her orthopedic comfort, but she also (laughs) likes to be fabulous. It's a struggle. (laughs) Got to have some, I always carry a giant bag so I can throw some flip-flops in there. Right. This film was released on December 21st, 1988, and it was directed by Mike Nichols. And Mike Nichols is a legend. He directed Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, The Graduate, Postcards from the Edge and the Birdcage and like a million other things. So, I mean, between the cast, this amazing screenwriter and Mike Nichols, how could you possibly go wrong with this film? Absolutely. Let's talk about Tess McGill. Tess McGill is played by Melanie Griffith and uh, her friend Sin played by Joan Cusack. We meet them on the Staten Island Ferry and <laughs> their hair, it's like perm <laughs> slash mullet, heavy teasing, aquanetted, whatever. They're making their way from Staten Island to Manhattan for their day jobs. Tess is a secretary for a stockbroker. And Melanie Griffith said, our first day of filming was actually for the first shot in the film on the ferry. And we shot it illegally. There we were with Joan Cusack, with the big hair and the tennis shoes. And we're all just there with the regular people on the Staten Island Ferry. We shot it without anybody knowing. It was like, here we go. Now I'm Tess. So we see these gals on the ferry and it's Tess's birthday. Sin wants to go out and celebrate her, but Tess is like, I have night class, blah, blah, blah. You know, and we see the girls make their way to their corporate jobs and and they're wearing the signature white sneakers along with their business attire. And I think it's worth mentioning that Tess is wearing like a very tight skirt and polka dot pantyhose. (laughs) Do you remember those though? That was like high fashion. (laughs) I remember wearing pantyhose to work, but I don't remember wearing like the patterned ones. We're too young for the patterned ones, but I remember my mom wearing the pantyhose with like the little rivet things or whatever. (laughs) I do remember. It was like the epitome of class and sophistication, right? (laughs) Like, wow, high fashion. So Tess works in this bustling office and Melanie Griffith said, we shot in the World Trade Center building seven that was taken down on 9-11. And at the time it was right after the Wall Street crash. So there were many floors that were empty. The dressing rooms we used were offices. I did know that they filmed in the World Trade Center. And when I watched the movie, it's hard not to like feel like, oh, like this is literally not there anymore. Yeah. Unbelievable. So Tess, she's super ambitious. You know, she's taking the night classes. We learn later that she earned her degree. 
And she wants to move up through her corporation's entree program. But the guys are telling her, like, you're not really a great candidate. You know, you're up against like Harvard grads. But but there's this guy in this other department, Bob Speck. He's looking for a new <laughs> assistant. Like, maybe you could take that job. Little Tess, pretty Tess. You don't belong in the entree program, but maybe you can be this guy's assistant. So Tess comes home from work and night school to find a surprise party. Later that night, we see her dressing in lingerie that her boyfriend, Mick, played by Alec Baldwin, bought her for her birthday. I think we can both agree. This was a (laughs) gift for Mick. This was not a gift for Tess. Actually, the whole movie I was watching, I was like, how hard can they work to show Tess and like all this over the top lingerie? A bod for sin, Jeanette, a bod for sin. It cracks me up, especially that scene where she's with sin and she's just like standing there talking to her friend, like in this like over the top, like Fredericks of Hollywood. Like a full teddy with with garter stockings. Like who wears garters? At home, after work. What? <laughs> no. Oh my gosh. She tells Mick, oh, well, thanks for the lingerie, but like I could really go for something that I could wear outside <laughs> of the apartment. <laughs> Melanie Griffith did say though, Alec Baldwin was handsome and charming, and I had such a crush on him, but he wouldn't go there with me. I was like, oh, come on, have a romance with me. But no, Alex said, I can't do this with people I work with. But then Mike, Mike Nichols, the director, came to me one day and he said that there was this investment banker, a young guy named Liam Dalton, who he wanted me to work with to teach me about mergers and acquisitions. And I was like, okay, great. I have to work with some dork from Wall Street. And then this guy walked in and he was so gorgeous, so sexy. I was like, yeah, tell me all about mergers and acquisitions. (laughs) We had an incredible romance. He was my love for a long time after that too. We're still friends. So see, smart can be sexy. I was going to say nerdy is the new sexy. Oh, 100%. (laughs) I mean, seeing Alec Baldwin when he was so young was, oh, he was so he fun. ever looked better. Oh my God, so handsome. So yeah, it was really cute. You know, I read that he was actually originally supposed to play the main character, the Harrison Ford character. And I just think this was such a better match for him. I know it wasn't the lead role, but it's just perfect Alec Baldwin material. Right it was there. great. So then we see poor Tess in the back of a car with Bob Speck, the guy that's looking for a new assistant, right? (laughs) Played by the deeply problematic Kevin Spacey. He's doing coke. He's popping champagne. And he's coming on to her and he's showing her porn. She tells him she's not interested. She sprays him with the champagne. She gets out of the car in a big old huff. And, you know, she's fed up. She's humiliated. She marches into work in her tennies and her Belted blue sweater, and she types on that. I don't even know what that thing's called in their office. That like digital. Oh, the banner. marquee. Uh-huh. The marquee. Yes, that's the word. She says David Lutz is a sleazoid pimp with a tiny little dick. And thanks for setting me up on this quote unquote interview with Bob Speck. So we now see her in HR. Oh, Cortez, <laughs> the personnel director, played by Olympia Dukakis. 
tells her, Tess, I've had to place you three times. I'm moving you to mergers and acquisitions, but this is the last time I can do this. She's now at her new job as an administrative assistant. She meets her new boss, Catherine Parker, played by Sigourney Weaver. And in this introduction, we learn that Tess just turned 30 and her boss, Catherine, is 29. And Tess is like, I've never worked for a woman before. And Catherine's like, that's not going to be a problem, is it? And seemingly, Catherine seems very supportive of Tess. She's a very classy woman. I mean, her wardrobe, even by like 1980 standards, totally on point. I love Sigourney Weaver already. And I love her in this role. I wish she had more. Uh (laughs) And if I can put in my professor uh, stats in here, please do. I thought it was really interesting that they said that they were essentially that they were both 30 Mm -hmm. because women have been earning more bachelor's degrees than men since 1982. Wow. More master's degrees than men since 1987. So this is very historically appropriate because Sigourney Weaver would have, you know, presumptuously have gone to college, traditional college, and that would make her of that era, right? Of the 1980, Mm -hmm. 1981 um, sort of graduating class. And so it would make sense that now by 1988, right, that she's like moving up the corporate ladder. So I really love that reference of their age. And it also made me laugh that they were only 30, right? (laughs) To see Catherine's apartment later. I mean, it's huge. It looks as though she comes from like family money. I'm sure she's earning a good salary, but like, I suspect that her degree is like from maybe like an Ivy institution. Doesn't she seem old money to you? Absolutely. It would be presumed, I think, that her family, you know, sent her away to college as opposed to like poor Tess, who's like trying to cobble together mm-hmm. her night school um, classes. Her edu- yeah. And yeah. Classes. So yes, I would. But at the same time, well, I guess that would explain it, right? Or that her parents presumably got her that apartment. But it's still so funny to think that a 30-year-old would hold a high-ranking position in New York City, right? in Manhattan, live in this giant, fabulous apartment with this amazing wardrobe. Right. Not to underestimate her brilliance because clearly she's a smart business woman, very savvy, very cutthroat. Uh, She knows how to work a room and, and we see all that demonstrated in her character, but like she has met the right people. She has been networking. She comes from people in the know, like legacy type stuff. Yes. So she seems very supportive of Tess initially, right? She's like, I want your input. I welcome your ideas. And I like to see hard work rewarded. It's a two-way street on my team. I consider us a team. Now on the surface, this sounds like really good leadership. What are your thoughts on this, Jeanette, (laughs) as an expert in the leadership field? I think Catherine knows all the right things to say. Mm. I guess I would say, you know, excellence in leadership has not changed, right? Good leaders treat people fairly regardless of their ranking. Um, You know, they value teamwork, this open communication. I mean, she's definitely saying all of the right things. Mm. And I think Tess fell for it. 
Yeah. I mean, I think anyone would. And really for tests, it's sort of like, oh, hey, this could be really great. This is what I'm looking for. I haven't had a woman boss before, but like she's supportive and she cares about my ideas. And I'm someone who has a lot of ideas and she's been in environments where those ideas have not been valued or recognized. And here is this new opportunity. Of course, she's excited. Absolutely. So Catherine wants to host like a party to introduce herself to all the people. And Tess has this bright idea to serve the dumplings at the party. And already Catherine's impressed. And Tess is like, oh, my God, I'm on my way. Right. So at the party, we see Catherine in action. Like she does a little bit of flirting to kind of like get what she wants. Like she's using her sexuality to help further her career. She's got the goods to back it all, but like she's using a little bit of her feminine wiles. What are your thoughts on that? We're seeing an example of how it can be done effectively. I'm afraid to even use that word. I I hear what you're saying. But she gives a tiny bit, but she also cuts people off, doesn't lead them on. She's just so very strategic about it, where when we see Tess attempt to do it, she jumps right into talking about her own body being made for sin. (laughs) I think that Catherine doesn't do it that way. You know, she shows her femininity as a way of power and persuasion, Mm. whereas Tess, like, opened the gates right up. Right. So at work. Tess approaches Catherine with this great idea, right? She's like, what about a merger between Trask Industries and a radio station? And she gives all the reasons why, and it's seemingly solid. And Catherine seems intrigued and says like, you know what, Tess, that's not a terrible idea. Like, leave me your notes and I'll take a look. And Tess mentions that she's trying to get into that entree program, right? And this would really help her out. And Catherine's like, absolutely. This is a two-way street, remember? And so Tess leaves and Catherine puts on her big red Sally (laughs) Jesse Raphael glasses to do a little bit more research and realizes, wow, this is actually a pretty great idea. So Tess tells her boyfriend, Mick, how exciting work is going because like Catherine is like my mentor and I'm finally being taken seriously. And she's just so happy. It's all she ever wanted. And like, don't you remember how good that felt when you really like believed in your heart that you were being taken seriously, like beyond your age, beyond what you look like? Absolutely. And I have to say the reason I was able to um, make it in my organization for 10 years and the reason that it was such a wonderful experience after you know looking back is because I had an amazing boss who truly was a mentor and he not only believed in me by telling me nice things, but by pushing me out in front of important people Mm. and having them get to know me and recognize me. And he did that when I was very uncomfortable doing it. Mm -hmm. And I'm just so, so grateful for him. I remember that feeling of being like proud of yourself and the sort of validation. And I think if I may, again, have another professor moment here. Please do. I want all the professor. <laughs> I did say that you were a doctor, but I think it's worth mentioning 
you have a PhD in organizational leadership. So she's a doctor, you guys. We <laughs> should really listen to her. She's done the research. She's got the education to back it. So please put on your, your oh, PhD gosh. doctor hat throughout <laughs> this, please. I want to just sort of take this moment to just emphasize to everyone that we all play such an important role in helping out the Tesses of the world. And the research shows mentors tend to mentor people who look like themselves. Oh, very interesting. Younger versions of themselves, which is what poses a challenge for women. Because if everyone holding the top positions, which we know, right, the majority of the top executive positions at organizations are held by men, then those men will tend to gravitate to mentor and advance younger versions of themselves, which are men. <laughs> and diversity plays a role in this yes. also. And I know that that has been a large part of your work too, is yes. promoting and celebrating ethnic diversity for women in the workplace. Yes. Um, so same thing, right? The majority of the people and holding high-level positions are white, identify, mm -hmm. self-identify as white. And so when they go to mentor somebody, they mentor someone who looks like them. And so it's so important for us to mentor and advance women and people of color in the workplace and in other organizations as well, whether it's church, PTA, whatever the other organizations mm -hmm. are, because yeah, you want to, um, you can make a big difference. We're not just talking about corporate environments. This is in everything we do. It's recognizing and promoting and lifting up and supporting. Absolutely. Okay. So Catherine, she's going to go skiing. She's going on this romantic trip and she's telling Tess, this weekend's so important. The man I'm seeing is going to propose to me. And her talk of her relationship with this man it sounds very sort of clinical, like he checks the boxes and like she, it sounds like she's talking about a merger rather than an actual relationship. And Tesca's like, well, Catherine, what's going to happen if he doesn't propose? And Catherine's like, I don't see that as a variable. <laughs> <laughs> so this is when she tells Tess like, oh yeah, hey, like your merger idea. Yeah, that's not going to work. And sorry about that. And Tess is just like, she's teary eyed, you know, she doesn't cry. She doesn't cry in front of Catherine like Lori would. She ran to the bathroom. To we, the didn't, bathroom. we didn't watch that scene, but she did. Catherine's on this skiing trip. She breaks her leg. She calls Tess and is like, okay, so I broke my leg. I'm in the hospital. I'm laid up for a time. Like, can you water my plants and like keep an eye on the house kind of a thing and do all these things for me, right? So this is when Tess gets to go to Catherine's amazing house. And I mean, she does what I think anyone would. <laughs> She's indulging in her beauty products, like luxury beauty products and bath products. Oh, amazing. And she's enjoying like her beautiful home. And, and she's even listening to Catherine's audio notes on her little tape recorder to try to like model her speech after her because, you know, she speaks casually and she doesn't speak with the poise and confidence that Catherine does. So as she's doing this, she comes across this audio note that references a memo that Catherine plans to send off about the merger being her idea. 
instead of Tess's. And and Tess confirms this. She finds the memo on the computer, <laughs> the old-fashioned <laughs> computer, the little screen, like the green Tess. Green screen. And so Tess is so deeply betrayed. She's like, okay, two-way straight. I guess I'm going to make it happen. So she's walking home. She's defeated. She walks into her house only to find her boyfriend, Mick, having sex with another woman. Like worst day ever, right? She decides to use Catherine's absence as an opportunity. She's going to use her lifestyle and her resources to go ahead with this merger plan. Like she knows this is a good idea. Tess schedules a meeting with Jack Trainer, played by Harrison Ford. This is when we get the scene. In Catherine's apartment where Sin is there and she's helping Tess get ready for the party. And she finds a dress to wear in Catherine's closet. Sin's like, it's $6,000. Tess is like ready to have a panic attack. This is the best line. Sin's like, $6,000? It's not even leather. Sin decides to raid Catherine's medicine cabinet and give Tess a Valium. To calm her nerves. Like, it's cool. Just take this volume. You'll be fine. And then at Tess's request, oh my God, Sin cuts her hair with like your regular standard crafting scissors, like Fisker's scissors. Never, ever do that. Use haircutting shears. But like, of course, through movie magic, Tess's hair looks amazing. It looks so much better short. It definitely looks so much better, but can we pause here for a second and just talk about Joan Cusack? Oh my God. Genius legend. I love her so much. I love the scenes that she's in. Her bangs are so, so big. Her eyeshadow is so multicolored. It's just so fabulous, but gosh, I just love watching Joan Cusack. And even though she's still playing the same characters, I mean, she's always played the same character, right? Hasn't she? She's just so quirky, such a great character actress. There are funny moments throughout the film, obviously, but like, she's just great comic relief. And every time she comes on screen, you're just energized by her presence. I agree. So, okay. We see a glammed up Tess and she's at the bar. And she's hoping to run into Jack before their meeting the next day. So she's sitting there and Jack sees her and he approaches her. She introduces herself and she tells him, I'm looking for Jack. And he's like, oh, Jack just left. And of course he's Jack. And he's like, no, I don't want to exchange business cards. I don't want to exchange names. I just want us to talk as people, no resumes. He orders some tequila they start drinking and she's feeling buzzed pretty quickly because remember she took that Valium. So Jack's like, I didn't know they let bad girls in here. Cause she's like, I'm feeling kind of buzzed. And this is when she says, I have a head for business and a bod for sin moment of respect for Melanie Griffith in this role, because the quality of her voice and, and just her spirit on film, there's this ingenue innocent yet savvy quality that she has. I mean, it's really something special. Well, I hate that line. I cringe. It's a great movie line. (laughs) Like in real life, maybe not so much. Like, oh, come on, girl. Don't, don't say that. But can we talk about Harrison Ford for Uh, a minute? Yeah, we can talk about Harrison Ford all day. I love Harrison Ford so much. So charming. 
for well, let me clarify. I love me some young Harrison Ford, yeah. which is different than older Harrison Ford. But for Melanie Griffith, she's not my favorite actress. Uh-huh. Um, and I know there's a lot of other actresses that were considered for this role mm-hmm. and that they had to fight for her. <laughs> And I can understand why, I think. But I think Harrison Ford comes off like that's really his personality. It just seems more genuine to me. Uh huh. If we were to talk about casting of the main leads, Melanie Griffith read the screenplay for Working Girl more than a year before production began. And she wanted the role. But the studio was like, we want Michelle Pfeiffer in this role. Mm-hmm. But the producer, Doug Wick, said, We realized that if you cast someone like that, he's talking about Michelle Pfeiffer, there would have been a line of guys at her desk trying to marry her. (laughs) We needed an old fashioned movie star, someone who, when they had their glasses on, you believed they had a little anonymity. And as soon as they took them off, you saw they were a beauty. You needed someone fiercely intelligent, but in a slightly more unique way. And the casting director, Juliette Taylor said, Griffith was the girl. It was almost a visceral reaction. She was adorable, funny, vulnerable, sexy, everything, and real. But the studio was disappointed because she wasn't famous. Now, as an aside, Melody Griffith was like a child actor. Mm -hmm. Like she started in her early teens, I believe. And she had done quite a lot, but like she wasn't famous. And this is the title role, right? It was a big budget production and they wanted box office draw. So Juliet Taylor, casting director, went on to say, they wanted a star in that part. Mike and I had already kind of fallen for Alec Baldwin and wanted him to play Jack Trainer, like you said, Jeanette, but the studio was catatonic about that. They did not want two unknowns in the leads. So apparently once the big stars, Sigourney Weaver and Harrison Ford were cast, the studio was like, okay. We believe these two actors can, you know, draw in the box office dollars. So, okay, you can cast Griffith. And it worked. The budget on the film was $28 million. The box office was $103 million. Wow. So it was very, very successful. But they were nervous to cast her in the lead. She just, she didn't have the notoriety at that time. And I think watching it now, she is all those things, right? Unknown, like, you know, that does play out well. I I mean, at the end of the day, this is a Cinderella plot line, right? Absolutely. She's poor. She gets desperate, pretends to be someone she's not. She meets the prince during that time. And then she has to, you know, reveal that that's not really who she is. So I think she kind of grows on you as her character develops and the movie evolves for Absolutely. Sure. So at the bar, she's there with Jack and she sees a coworker and she's like, oh shit, I don't want to be found out. I, I got to leave. And she tells him, meet me outside. He goes outside and finds her passed out in the cab and she can't tell him where she lives. So he takes her to his house and puts her in his, was that a twin bed, Jeanette? Jack freaking trainer. Does he have a twin bed? Was it a double? <laughs> what was it? A very small bed. It even looks short. <laughs> Jack Trainer is an attractive single man. He has guests from time to time in his bed. Why did they make that choice? <laughs> it's trying to portray him as like kind of like that humble bachelor. Right. Like the everyman, if you will. I, I mean, I get it. 
But I think even the every adult man <laughs> sleeps in more than a twin bed if you ever want to have a guest in your bed. So it was very interesting. It was the 80s, Lori. Was, I mean, I guess. <laughs> she wakes up in the morning in his bed next to him and she's like, oh, no. Of course, she doesn't know this is Jack Trainer. This is just the guy she met at a bar. She sneaks out. She goes into her meeting with Jack Trainer. He's there. Oh my God, it's the guy I woke up to <laughs> this morning. Jack keeps it professional and she presents her idea. And I thought she did a pretty good job. She didn't really seem to think she did, but I thought she did well. I thought so too. I mean, in the next scene, we see her with Sin at her desk and Sin, oh my God, is wearing, talk about eyeshadow. This is the scene <laughs> with the most egregious aggressive eyeshadow I have ever seen on a human person. So Jack shows up and tells her he wants to move forward with the idea. And um, he assures her nothing happened last night. Of course. And there's chemistry between these two. Immediately. We see it. We sense it. He really wants her to have dinner with him. And she's like, nope, I don't think we should get involved that way. Like, let's keep it on the up and up and professional. Sin is having an engagement party at a bar and Mick is there and he's all depressed. This was kind of weird to me. Sin was like, give him another chance, Tess. Yeah. This is definitely cringy. Mm -hmm. Only thing that I could kind of come up with was, you know, you're getting married, your friends are in yeah. the wedding and then breaking up like right before your wedding especially if Mick was her friend as Cindy's friend. I don't know. That's the only thing. No, I you know what? Myself. That's a, actually, that's a really good point. So my maid of honor in my wedding boyfriend at the time was my fiance's best man. So it was like, we were the foursome and they broke up right before our wedding. And it was tough. I guess I get why sin would want them to be together. It's just more fun that way, right? When everyone's coupled up and you could just go out and have a good time. He wasn't the best for her. No. Tess and Mick, they have a moment. Later in the evening, Mick is egged on by like all the guests at the party to ask Tess to marry him, which he does. And she answers maybe, which was surprising. I mean, this only happened a couple of days ago. She caught him in bed with that other woman. Yeah. And he's like, maybe. And she's like, you want another answer? Ask another girl. Well, he's totally humiliated. Meanwhile, Jack secures a radio network and it's starting to come together, right? But they hit a snag when Catherine calls Tess to tell her, oh, I'm leaving the hospital early. I'm going to be home soon. Tess comes up with this bright idea to approach the Trask CEO, Oren Trask. And she's like, I'm going to talk to him tomorrow at his daughter's wedding. They arrived to the wedding together. And this is when Jack finds out we're crashing this wedding. And she's like, yes. And by the way, did you notice Tess shows up to that wedding wearing white? I immediately noticed that. I guess... You know, they're showing how like self-centered she was and she was or naive that she wouldn't know that that is a major faux pas. Like that is a social faux pas. You don't do that. I would think that she was being more self-centered, right? And didn't care because she's crashing this poor bride's wedding. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
in fairness to Tess, because we like her and she's the protagonist of the story and we want her to win. I thought it was just naivete that she doesn't know about like the social mores and proper etiquette of a wedding, because while she does crash the wedding, she's not disrupting the wedding. I felt like she treated the event with enough respect, albeit she crashed it, but a girl's got to do Jeanette. A girl's got to do. Sure. She's making it happen. She's following Catherine's She's lead. She's making it happen. She's taking yeah. matters into her own hands. Ooh. Did you spot Ricky Lake as a bridesmaid? I didn't. Jack actually talks to her. It's it's Ricky Lake. I'm going to rewatch it. Yes. So Tess is pretty smooth. She's focused. She finds a way to dance with Trask. Now, this is interesting to me because she kind of pulls a Catherine. She talks him up. She's very poised. She uses a little bit of her feminine wiles, but not too much. And she gets him talking and she's like, you know, I've got this idea, you know, are you interested? And he's like, yeah, I'm interested. And they're going to be able to set up a meeting. That's a big deal. Mission accomplished. Jack and Tess finally kiss and back at Jack's place, they make out. Jack takes off Tess's jacket. You can see her giant shoulder pads under that blouse. (laughs) It's so funny because two things. One, like the back of the shirt is completely see-through. You can see her Fredericks of Hollywood (laughs) lacy bra. Which is the most uncomfortable bra ever by the way, who would wear that to work? Like you would like be all day, jacket. Oh God. but then like the juxtaposition is so hilarious because it's like this sexy blouse that, where you could see the white lace bra on the back, but then the giant <laughs> shoulder pads. Yeah. It's just so funny. It shows all of the different facets of being a woman in business. You're trying to be like businessy with these giant shoulder pads. And yet, underneath and it yet all, sexy brain for business and a bod for sin. I mean, she's she's demonstrating that clearly, right? Yeah, it's so funny. I mean, everybody knows those Fredericks of Hollywood type bras and things. <laughs> they're so uncomfortable that they are designed to be worn in an intimate setting only because you won't be wearing them very long. This is not all day office wear. No one could wear this all day. <laughs> It'd be miserable. Yeah. Although I will say when I watch old movies like this, old, like 80s movies, <laughs> and I'm like, that's her real breast. Like, that is so oh, yeah. impressive. <laughs> like, you don't see that very often no. nowadays in movies. And it's sort of refreshing. <laughs> her body is amazing. Yes. Okay. They end up in bed together. And the next morning, she comes very close to telling him the truth. But then he gets a call from another woman. And when he gets off the phone, he admits to Tess, okay, yeah, there is another woman, but it's over. And I was about to break up with her. But then, you know, she broke her leg on a ski trip and I didn't have the heart to do it then. And of course, Tess is putting this all together. She realizes he's talking about Catherine and she decides not to tell him the truth. Should she have come clean in that moment? Um... Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, it's just so ridiculous that she would 
I kept thinking like, if that's Catherine's boyfriend, what he never went to her office. Like they both work in Manhattan. They never had lunch together. And that's like, a really good point. Didn't he call her at work in the office and she answers the phone? He wasn't like, oh, this is my girlfriend's phone number. That's interesting. Well, she has. I mean, number. he knew she was in the hospital, but when he shows up after their first meeting to give her that briefcase and say, like, I want to do this with you, he knows that's Catherine's office. Although, right. although, okay, we're spending <laughs> a lot of disbelief here, but let's consider this. She is new in that position. Catherine is new. Remember that whole party was to sort of introduce herself. Maybe he had never been to her office. Because it's Harrison Ford. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. Okay. Yeah. We didn't talk about the the scene where he takes off his shirt, though. He's changing in the office and all the <laughs> ladies are watching. I'm like, oh, yes. It just makes me cringe, right? I think back in the days when I had a big office or whatever, when you're at work all day, eight hours a day there, and you have like no privacy because there's glass everywhere. Mm-hmm. So that scene just makes me cringe. Um, thinking back to that feeling of constantly being on display, basically. And you are. Every move is being watched and clocked by somebody, <laughs> especially, you know, those people who maybe don't want you to succeed. I had a situation in my corporate job where we were doing some downsizing. And I came over from another department and there were suddenly two people who did the same thing. And we were now in the same environment. And this was a woman and she was out to keep her job. And she tried very, very hard to throw me under the bus. She wanted me fired to save her own butt. And she lied about me. And it was a real problem because she was older. She was more experienced, but she was manipulative and vindictive. And it was a very, very hard time for me at work because I had been there longer at that point, but I was still a young woman. I was maybe 30. Just like Catherine. It was one of those things, like, who are they going to believe? And it was just honestly, in my whole corporate experience, that was the hardest time in my life. And it's sad. Like you would like to think that women lift women up. And that's just not always the case. We talk a lot about things like glass ceilings being taken seriously by men. And this happens amongst ourselves. And it is so, so challenging and heartbreaking. And it's that feeling that there's only enough room for so many women. It's already hard to secure your spot and to be taken seriously. And if someone is feeling threatened because there is a lack of opportunity, things like this happen. And it's because I think there is an underlying feeling that there is a limited number of seats at the table. Because there are. Because there are. (laughs) Not delusional. (laughs) This isn't like a personal insecurity. So Catherine's coming back. Tess has got to get that house in order. This is when we see her vacuuming topless. Yes. So this scene was Griffith's idea. She said to Nichols, the director, What about if I'm vacuuming just wearing high heels and my panties? Would that be okay? His face was like, of course that would be okay. (laughs) Would you do that? So like the idea originally was that it was going to be a full bra and a slip and panties, like, you know, like her undergarments. Fredericks of Hollywood. Right, right. Her Fredericks of Hollywood undergarments. But Griffith said like, that's not how it would be. 
if you were in a rush, that's how I lived. I wouldn't get dressed to vacuum. And I'm like, Melanie Griffith, I would get dressed to vacuum. Maybe if you had her body, you wouldn't. You'd be like, (laughs) I don't know about that. I mean, I could easily argue that it is far more comfortable to (laughs) vacuum without that Fredericks of Hollywood lacy itchy bra. But like in life, Jeanette, I don't go around doing household chores when I'm not dressed. That's just not a thing I do. I lived alone, both in an apartment and a home for nearly 10 years. And I am pretty certain I have never vacuumed in my underwear. (laughs) No, it's just not a thing that happens. Artistically, I actually (laughs) love that shot. It's a split second. It's from very far away. Yes. And it's very pinup inspired. And I love all things. Very Rolling Stone 2003. Yes. Well, (laughs) now we know where they got it from. Of course. But yes, it is so bizarre. (laughs) So if you were wearing lacy, fancy panties, you would presume that she's wearing nice clothes. And so she didn't want to get her nice clothes messed up. So she just took it off really fast. So she right. could like clean up really fast and then put her suit back on. But why would you take off your bra? <laughs> her whole thinking is if you're in a hurry, you're not going to put on a bra to vacuum. I'm like, you're not going to put on a bra to vacuum, but you are going to put on a bra to leave the house that you're trying to get ready because your boss is coming home. Hence, you got to put on a bra either way. Very weird. Yes. Very weird, but entertaining and funny moment. Entertaining for yes. sure. Catherine returns home the same day that they're having the meeting to finalize the murder. Murder? <laughs> Merger. To a bloopers reel. Two very different things. So while Tess is helping to get her like all settled into her house, Catherine does mention the memo that she wrote to Jack about this merger idea. Her intuition was telling her that Catherine was lying, but like, what if Catherine was telling Mm -hmm. the truth? And she had to be feeling guilty. I mean, she was caught essentially by Catherine snooping. Right. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. And she knows in her heart that she has been living in this woman's house, using her connections, wearing her clothes, enjoying this opulent, aspirational lifestyle. Mm. And so, yeah, I think there was maybe a little bit of guilt in that, too. Even though Tess is there, like helping to get her all settled, Catherine's in a full, like, slip in bed. Like, she's wearing the lingerie. She's putting perfume all over her body. Who does that? I don't know. In the 80s, we did that. I guess in so. the 90s, too. I mean, all that CK1, just put it all yes. over you. All that Bath and Body Works, all that cucumber melon. Mm hmm. Catherine's trying to lure Jack over to the apartment. Jack has this meeting. Tess gets out of there and Catherine, she's all sexed up, right? She, she's coming on to Jack. She tells him my biological clock is ticking. She's 30. I just think that we should like merge. It's time. Mr. And Mrs. Fabulously wealthy. (laughs) I don't know a lot about men, Jeanette, but (laughs) I'm pretty sure talking of commitment and parenthood is not the way to get a man interested. I, I think it probably do the opposite. She should have prepared him some big meal with like a <laughs> giant beer. <laughs> Honestly, don't know why he went. He has this big, important meeting. Like I know Catherine is persuasive and I know she's bossy as heck, but 
Why would he go? Because he's a good guy. He has a heart of gold. I mean, he did cheat on her. I know in his mind it was over, but he did cheat on her. He's feeling extra. (laughs) He's feeling really guilty about it. He gets out of there. He's going to the big Trask meeting. And in Tess's haste to get out of Catherine's apartment, she left behind her daily planner. Circa 2000, (laughs) I left my business planner at a restaurant in Manhattan (sighs) Beach. And it was so horrible. And you know, your whole life is wrapped up in that. Yes. I still keep a daily planner, pen and paper. I need that. My brain needs that. I keep one too, but this time it doesn't have to leave my desk. Whereas back then I had to carry it. Right. I mean, you had to have it. It had all your contacts in it, right? Had all your phone numbers, it had everything that was most certainly your business Bible. Yes, for sure. I mean, down to like, we were tracking our menstrual cycles in it. (laughs) Like there was no apps, right? There was a digital calendar. Did you ever get your calendar back? I didn't. All of my clients' information was gone. A competitor must have taken it. Someone who did not want you to succeed took that. That's true. (laughs) Okay. Well, Catherine discovers it and Catherine's smart. She sees what's going on. She's like, oh, oh, heck no. So in spite of her injury, (laughs) she hurries and gets dressed and and with crutches and everything, she makes it to the meeting. Like all of Tess's dreams are about to come true. She's got the man. The deal is going to be signed today. This thing is actually happening. And then Catherine pushes her way into the meeting in the most dramatic fashion. She calls Tess out as her secretary. She accuses her of stealing this idea. Tess tries to start to tell the truth, but like nobody's going to believe her. It's so sad. Like she just kind of tearfully apologizes and just leaves. And Jack does not know what to do. Like Jack continues with the meeting. Things aren't going well for Tess. She feels like she lost Jack. Obviously, she lost Mick, which good riddance. She's going to lose her job. Then Tess goes to the office to clear out her desk. On her way out of the office building with her box of stuff, her personals, she bumps into Jack, Catherine, and Mr. Trask. Jack asks her point blank, was I just part of this scheme? And she says no. Catherine and Tess get into a confrontation. Jack ultimately ends up standing up for Tess. And he tells Trask, Tess is the leader of this deal. We shouldn't proceed without her. Mr. Trask does not know who to believe. And he's ready to go up with Catherine to finalize the deal until Tess tells him like, okay, go ahead. But like, there's a hole in the deal. He's like, what? He jumps out of the elevator. He rides up with Jack and Tess. And Tess tells him how she came up with the idea. and. When they reach the top, Catherine's like, she's lying. It was my idea. And he asks her, how did you come up with this idea? And she can't tell him. So Mr. Trask is livid. He tells her he's going to get her fired. And then he tells Tess, I want you to take an entry-level job with Trask Industries. And um, she's super excited. And Tess and Jack kiss. So it's now Tess's first day at her new job. 
And she just assumes that the desk in the cubicle is hers. And she sets her stuff down. She pops her head in the office and she sees a woman on the phone with her feet up on the desk. And so, you know, the big window office, and she assumes that's her boss. And the woman comes out and they start talking and there's like confusion. No, I'm the assistant to you. Tess, you're the boss. This is actually your office. The administrative assistant's name is Alice, and she apologizes for using her phone and putting her feet up on the desk. And Tess just cannot even believe that this is her office. Like, this is the formative moment. I made it. I've got the office, it's got the window. Tess tells her, like, Look, I want us to work together as colleagues. And Alice feels respected in that even brief exchange. And this is when. Tess sits down at her desk and Sin is just so happy for her. There's just all this excitement. What kind of leader do you think Tess is going to be from everything that she's experienced? Ooh, that's a hard one. You know, I read that originally the movie was written so that her assistant, Alice, was actually a man. I kind of like that dynamic. Which I, when I read it, I was like, oh, that would be really cool. Um, and then they talked about how it's presumed that it was changed to a woman to show how Tess treated her. So hopefully Tess would be honest with her and would encourage her, you know, to share her ideas and would give her credit. Giving credit at work to people is still a really prevalent <laughs> concern for people nowadays, even in meetings when we're all together and someone, you know, oftentimes it's a woman or a person of color says something and it's dismissed. Right. And then another person says the same thing and and it's heard and it's like heard. Right. So it's still happening um, and it's happening in the open. Right. It's not like this over-the-top plot to backstab mm-hmm. someone in the back. It's happening um, in real time and you're going like, wait, 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 what happened? <laughs> so yeah, hopefully she will be a mentor like she wanted and she will also diversify. You know, there's the other trend right now is diversity in female-dominated fields like nursing and mm-hmm. teaching. Mm-hmm. I think the moral of the story here is that we can all do better if we're aware and conscientious and helping everyone and not just those that look like us. And, um, you know, the big thing is to be aware of our own biases because a lot of times we don't know we're doing it. Yes. And I think that that's key. You know, people often don't realize that women's participation in the labor force peaked at about 1999. We had about 60% of the workforce was female. And it's actually been declining since then. As of 2019, women were 47% of the labor force. And I'm sure it's even less after the pandemic, right? Yes, more women hold jobs that were affected by the pandemic 
I believe the the numbers are about 58% of the workers um, at the most at-risk occupations for these impacts are women. And then Latinas are the most likely to suffer with um, one in three working at a high-risk field for, for something like this occurring. So it's a very real problem. No one is playing the victim. (laughs) Right. Well, in looking back on the film, Melanie Griffith said, if Tess were around today, she would be running Google. She'd have a lot of kids and maybe still be married to Jack. Playing her changed everything for me. It was great to have that life change be with such a positive story and a good message. It's an example of how to speak up and stand up for yourself and not sell yourself out for a job or a guy. You don't have to acquiesce to a man or a woman. I mean, it's the true underdog story, right? I love that. Yeah. I love that. And actually Harrison Ford, and I'm sorry, I don't know the um, source for this. He said something along the lines of, I play the role of the woman (laughs) in this film, which I think is so telling. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, Uh right? Because if we give him the benefit of the doubt that he was not saying it in a way where he was like embarrassed of his role, he's acknowledging it was one of the first times that the roles were reversed Mm -hmm. with regards to gender. And we see him supporting her and lifting her up. Yeah. Kind of at times really in the background. Yeah. And there's a lot of positive sort of images that were portrayed by the movie that, you know, again, the late eighties, early nineties were, you know, with the most number of women in the workplace, the most number of women rapidly ascending in the workplace. And so that's great. The concern is all of these sort of negative tropes mm-hmm. <laughs> and stereotypes right. that the movie perpetuated that are still and still impacting us today. Right. The film, as I said, it was very, very successful. It was nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress for Melanie Griffith, Best Supporting for Joan Cusack, and Best Supporting for Sigourney Weaver. And Best Original Song, which is, of course, Let the River Run, written and performed by Carly Simon. God bless. Love her. Now, the film only won one Academy Award for Best Original Song. And Let the River Run also won a Golden Globe and a Grammy. This film, it's still a treasure today. Like, it still holds up in so many ways, which is a good thing or a bad thing, or maybe a little bit of both, because we can really see these like tropes and stereotypes still portrayed today. Yeah. I think it held up. I mean, when you make a movie, give people really neutral costumes (laughs) (laughs) so that it can hold up for a long time, but it's part of the charm of this film. Yes, for sure. But I think it does hold up. I think we do need to recognize, you know, the two primary main characters were women and they played, you know, masculine sort of protagonists. And so I think that's pretty great. Yeah, I do too. Working Girl was developed into a sitcom in 1990 starring Sandra Bullock as Tess. No, I did not. I didn't either. It only lasted 12 episodes, so it didn't last very long, but crazy, right? I have to look that up. But I know you're going to love this bit of news because you are a huge Cyndi Lauper fan. You love her. She is writing the music and score for a Broadway musical based on Working Girl. So that's in the works, you guys. 
I heard that and I'm so excited. I hope that's true. And I hope that happens. And we totally have to go. See we it. will go see that Jeanette. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. It's totally a date. So I mentioned at the top of the pod that you're a college professor. We've talked about it a little bit. You specialize in leadership. Now, obviously good leadership matters in business. Of course. I mean, we've all had our fair share of like horrible bosses and leaders in our careers, but as an expert, why does good leadership matter so much to the health and success of an organization? Ooh, that is a big question. <laughs> I think what I have seen from all those years of working with so many different clients, and I think this is even more so the case right now, it's a scary time right now. And people are afraid to make a decision. People are afraid to make hard decisions. Mm. Leaders aren't leaders because they make decisions. A good leader is a leader because they make the hard decisions. And what I Ooh. often tell my students is that you're it's not going to be black and white, like, um, you know, do the right thing, do the wrong thing. <laughs> right? If it were, it would be easy. It's going to be choosing between two things that could potentially be very bad, right? And ethics is so, so important. It doesn't matter what your faith background is. Um, what's important is the ability or the conscious to make an ethical decision mm -hmm. and to think about the impact on people, not just the impact on money. I think that we have made decisions and business based on what yields the greatest profits for so long. And I think that's why our organizations are hurting. That's why the people in the organizations are hurting. That's why we're seeing this exodus. Even, you know, oftentimes I have students who are like, I'm dying to work at Amazon. I'm dying to work at Google, at Apple, right? And then I tell them, you know what? I know so many people who worked for those organizations and left because the working conditions were so harsh. I knew someone who worked at one of these high profile organizations and they did keep a change of clothes at home because they did work all night long and they were mm. in the office there um, sleeping in their office. And that's not good <laughs> for anyone. So it's hard to be a leader these days. It's not glamorous. We have to make the hard choices, choices that are unpopular. I think unpopular. that's really popular. You won't always be liked. Yeah. Doing the right thing can be very unpopular because doing the right thing sometimes does not yield the greatest money. Right. Wow. I mean, I know in your extensive teaching experience. Gosh, you've taught everything from organizational change, ethics, and human behavior to conflict resolution and negotiations to leading organizational change. That's never easy when an organization's going through changes. Do you have a favorite class or workshop that you hold particularly close to your heart? Ooh, um, well, the topics um, and the research topics, sort of research agenda that I'm, I'm sort of most passionate, there's two, basically two areas. The first one is diversity and inclusion of women and people of color in the workplace, as well as in education and higher education. 
both school and work was fundamentally designed for privileged white males. And so there's changes in the infrastructure and in the culture and the norms that need to be made in order to be better serve um, minorities like women and people of color. Mm -hmm. So that um, research and classes and topics around that is really um, important to me. And then the other one is mindful leadership. And again, it's this well-being of the leaders. And the reason I sort of fell into that was one, because of my own (laughs) stress and, you know, struggle with burnout and those sorts of issues. But also in my corporate training and executive coaching, I mean, I hear this all the time. People are truly burnt out and they're just still continuing. Mm-hmm. And that's not going to yield the best results or happy employees or the most productivity. Absolutely. And, you know, we're seeing an increase in anxiety and medication for this and blood pressure, suicide, depression. So if the, and it's often very excellent leaders, our best leaders (laughs) are taking on so much. And so those are the two sort of areas that I'm really, really passionate about, but ultimately my concern is with helping people thrive in the workplace, helping them progress in their career aspirations so that they can achieve their personal and professional goals. In America, our professional goals are, and our professional achievement is closely tied to our personal lifestyle. And so it, it's important. That makes perfect sense. And it sounds like balance I mean, or the pursuit of balance is a really big part of this. Absolutely. As I mentioned, people can connect with you. You know, you offer your consulting services. They're available. You guys can learn more by connecting with Jeanette on Instagram at leading mindful. And I will put links to Jeanette's stuff in the show notes. So you can check her out and learn more about what she's doing in terms of mindful leadership, because you guys, it's not just that Jeanette has all the education and she teaches all the things, but she actually lives it too. And that's demonstrated in her Instagram. So it's really cool to connect with her there. I know you work really hard at that daily. It's a daily practice for you. Thank you so much. It's (laughs) have to persevere and keep our mental health and wellness. It's so, so important. And so Jeanette, before I let you go, I have their lightning round questions. Um, I've known you so long. I feel like I know a lot of these answers, but our audience doesn't. So I'm going to ask them, are you ready for this? I'm scared a little bit. Let's go. Be scared. Let's do it. Okay. Pearl jam or Nirvana? Pearl jam. Best fast food fries? McDonald's. Mm -hmm. I agree with both those answers. (laughs) We alluded to this briefly. Favorite 90s fragrance? Ooh. Eternity. Ooh, I like that you stepped outside (laughs) of the CK1 of it all and you went with eternity. I think that was late 90s, but um, yeah, whenever I smell that, it smells like work. Oh, it smells like work. (laughs) Smells like a business suit. (laughs) Oh, I really like that smell. I should have said, like, what's the Tommy one? Tommy girl. Tommy girl. Oh, so cute. So fresh face. I had that. I had that at one point. Yeah. Okay. Did you ever own a bucket hat? Yes. 
I love me a bucket hat. I know you do. <laughs> I haven't owned one in 10 years, but you might be like one of the only people I know that actually looks good in a bucket hat. You're so funny. I just like to hide. <laughs> don't don't want to do my hair. Okay. Only on vacation. So let's be clear. Fair. This is a 90210 reference. Ooh. Brandon or Dylan? Brandon. You know, I like my nerdy. You do. You like a nerdy boy. I like a nerdy boy. Well, speaking of nerdy boys, and I mean this in the most (laughs) lovely possible way. Yes. (laughs) So you guys might remember last season, season two, I had Jeanette's husband, Eric J. Gennard, the author on this podcast, we covered the lost boys and he was phenomenal. He had so much amazing, brilliant insight. <laughs> Don't I love me him. Too. Yes. Okay. 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 So Jeanette likes her intellectual types. Yes. We know. What was your first car? Um, the first car I drove was my dad's 1987 Ford Ranger. Okay. But the first car of my own was a 1988 Chevy Blazer lifted, which I loved. It was of the era of the OJ Simpson Ford Bronco. It looked like that. That's unfortunate, Jeanette. Okay. Were you a latchkey kid? Absolutely not. I am a nice Latina. I come from a nice Latina family. And so, yeah, my mom was always at home. Okay. What was your after school snack of choice? Ooh, I don't remember, but I can tell you, speaking of old fashioned snacks, someone gave my daughter a bag of Funyuns the other day. They're so salty. I had one like a year ago and I was like, I used to devour Funyuns. I cannot even with them anymore. I feel like I have to give a shout out to Funyuns. <laughs> they remind me of like junior high. Yeah. Totally. We didn't have those at home, but that's the, that's the snack of the era that it makes me think of. Film that traumatized you most as a kid. I think Poltergeist. Oh, I mean, yeah. Because the TV was like such a big part of our life. Yes. Um, To associate like something frightening with the TV, which is like the center of your household. I think that's, I have to give it to that. The TV, the ultimate babysitter, the ultimate Gen X babysitter. Yes. Okay. First concert. I remember Lilith Fair. Oh, yes. Clearly. And I remember, um, who's the yodeling girl? Jewel. Jewel. I remember that. We saw Jewel at the Will Turn. At the Will Turn. I mean, yeah, I'm a fan of this 90s singer-songwriter vibe. (laughs) Totally. Okay. This last question is for me. Favorite Elton John song? Oh. You know nobody loves him more than me. You know it. I know. Tiny Dancer? That's a good one. It's very hard to pick a favorite. Tiny Dancer comes to mind first. Okay. That's a good answer. It's a great song. Well, Jeanette, thank you so much for joining me to talk Working Girl, all the the office politics and the shoulder pads. And, oh, I love it. It was just so fun to catch up with you in this way. It was so fun. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to share some of those depressing stats. 
know, but when we know this stuff, we can start thinking about things differently and that's what matters. Unfortunately, we're still grappling with some of these things, but we can still be fabulous in the workplace as well. <laughs> Minus the lacy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need lacy stuff when we're trying to get things done. We don't need lacy stuff. No. Well, thank you, Jeanette, for joining me. And I'll, again, link to all of Jeanette's stuff in the show notes. And I want to send a great big thank you all for listening. If you are enjoying the pod, I invite you to rate and subscribe so you never miss an episode. We have a Patreon, patreon.com forward slash the Untitled Gen X podcast. And as always, we hope you keep in touch, beautiful people. Bye.